0: Welcome to In The Making, I'm Selena, your host, and today we're going to talk about living with uncertainty, especially when it comes to mental health and mental illness. Um, I have three guests today, which is so much fun. Um, I have Sanaa Watts, who is on staff with Power to Change, who I've gotten to know when she was a student, actually, and uh, continuing through staff. And she is somebody who um, has battled with mental illness and uh, is here to share bits and pieces of her story with us. And we have Daniel Whitehead, who is the CEO. Did I say your last name right?
1: You did. Great. Well done.
0: That's great. Uh, he's the CEO of Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries, which is actually an organization that Power to Change has partnered with, and um, all Power to Change staff or campus staff had to take a course with it in the summer, and I was really blessed to take that course. But Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries is a nonprofit that exists to equip the church to support mental health and well being. And you can distinguish him from all of us because he has a British accent, since he's originally from England. Um, and he now lives in Vancouver with his wife and two children. Uh, We also have Alistair Stern, who is the founding and lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside in Vancouver, British Columbia. He wrote the book, Rhythms for Life, Spiritual Practices for Who God Made You to Be, which actually came out at the end of September. And I listened to the book launch, um, I was walking, so I was kind of, it was on YouTube and I was kind of like watch, watching and listening at the same time, but it made me super excited to have you as a guest um, on this podcast. Uh, I am requesting friends and family to buy this book for themselves and for me because I don't currently own it, but I want to, um, but I might get impatient, just buy it for myself because uh, that happens sometimes. I am always buying books and reading half of them. Um, But this is actually a book that I do want to read because um, it does pertain to both spiritual formation and mental health. And I think that um, that is something that we could all learn more about, um, hence this podcast as well. And so why don't we just begin actually by maybe defining some terms. Um, How would you guys define mental illness and mental health?
1: Well, maybe I'll dive into that one. I think for us at Sanctuary, we make a very clear distinction between mental health and mental illness. Um, they can absolutely intersect. But uh, to put it simply, I think where mental illness is a like a diagnosed condition, it's something that would be clinically diagnosed. Um, and in that sense, for people to have a mental illness would, would, would need a diagnosis from a, a medical professional. Mental health is something we all have. Uh, every human being that's ever lived and ever will live and currently lives has mental health. Uh, the question is, uh, is your mental health currently flourishing or languishing? And and in that sense, the mental health journey is an ever moving, ever changing journey. And um, just because you may say I have good mental health today doesn't mean you will tomorrow. So uh, that's the, the significant difference. They intersect, but they're actually uh, different different experiences, although they can look the same.
2: Yeah, and that, it's that intersection where the the challenge of mental health might look very different for one person to the next. So if you have a diagnosed mental illness, you're going to have some distinct and unique challenges in your pursuit of mental health, uh, and the pathways toward mental health might look quite a bit different uh, than someone who doesn't have a diagnosed illness. But I like what Dan said. It's we all have mental health. It's just a matter of uh, what are what activities and what dispositions are we cultivating uh, so that we can flourish in our mental health no matter what other factors may be uh, impeding us in that flourish.
0: I love the words flourishing and languishing sorry (laughs) they're so descriptive to me.
3: I think that was actually one of my favorite parts of the sanctuary course I think this was maybe the first week or second week um, with those definitions of, of flourishing and languishing and how for me, I'm someone who's diagnosed with a mental illness. Um, But it was really profound to realize, oh, I could actually be flourishing even though I have a mental illness. Um, I'm not doomed to languishing because I have a mental illness. And um, as my husband and I were doing this course together, he doesn't have a mental illness, but we realized we've both been languishing regardless. Um, And so it was just interesting to see how um, just to see something perfectly encapsulate what has been our lived experience for the last, oh, at that time, for the previous six months or so, um, probably longer now. And so, yeah, I have nothing else to add but to say flourishing, languishing, the difference between mental illness and mental health in general has been so perfectly summarized already.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that's a that's a really good point, isn't it? Because the, the key thing about that model that we at, that Sanctuary loves so much, it was developed by a guy called Corey Keyes in America, is um, you can be someone with a diagnosed mental illness and have better mental health than someone with no diagnosed mental illness. That's what his research found. He found that 25% of people didn't fit neatly into where you're languishing and you have an illness and you're flourishing and you don't have an illness. He actually found that 25% of people um, don't fit that. So if you have a diagnosed mental illness, but you have great support structures, you have a church that's praying for you, you have a doctor, you've got the right medication, you've got a great therapist, great family, relational connections, you're eating well, all of those things, you can have great mental health, and yet someone else who doesn't have any of that structure in place, who just grinding workout nine to five can be languishing and never really understand that so that's a key key point to make
2: in my own journey like that that definition though of what is great mental health like moving away from this false notion that great mental health means i never feel negative Mm -hmm. or have a bad experience you know like moving away from this some sort of perfection of um the opposite of stoicism being like a, a a complete like joyful, positive spirit nonstop Hmm. Um, and accepting that actually great mental health is being able to sit with heavier emotions to name them, make space for them, express them to have dips and to have moments where uh, life is difficult and and you're processing it and you're feeling what comes with that. That's actually health. And I think previously my own background, that was what's wrong? How do I get life back to equilibrium? How do I remove this from my life so that I can return to, you know, feeling better? And I I think that that's a really important part of my own journey. And and I've seen in other people's journeys toward mental health is what we call negative emotions, which I don't Mm -hmm. think is the greatest phrase, but uh, emotions that we'd prefer to avoid or weightier emotions are actually Mm -hmm. healthy emotions that, it's healthy to feel sad, it's healthy to feel grief. Um, yeah. It's unhealthy if that's all you feel. Mm. Similarly, it's unhe- it can be a sign of unhealth if all you feel is joy, because that can be a sign of mania.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, Alistair? You, like, we look at the world, Any in any moment, there is a, a, a million reasons to despair mm. and a million reasons to rejoice. And and essentially what I hear you saying is all of these difficult emotions, which our culture and there's a whole history there we could go into but possibly won't for why we've turned certain emotions negative and see others as positive we've lost sight of the fact that the reason we feel sad or angry or any of these difficult emotions is because god feels those things Mm. And, and we're made in his image these are very healthy emotions to feel particularly at a time like this to despair and feel anxiety is actually kind of a sign of health in a weird way because there's a lot to feel anxious about um but as you say, if it becomes a controlling thing, then then we need to look at that.
0: Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I actually just had a conversation right before this podcast with a student who said, I just want to feel happy again. And I I was telling her, I don't know if you should feel happy again, <laughs> you know, if that is the ultimate goal necessarily is, is feeling happiness in a season that is actually quite difficult and hard for many people and that you are experiencing difficulties yourself. Um, and so it's kind of comforting to hear you guys say this cause I'm like, Oh, okay. I guess that was kind of good. Um, good for me to just encourage that it's okay to actually feel sad. It's okay to feel angry when things are not going well. Um, and that doesn't—that's not necessarily a sign of unhealth. It's a sign of being aware of how you are feeling and what is happening in the world and how it is affecting you, um, and acknowledging that God actually has feelings as well and that maybe He feels the same way that you are feeling currently.
2: Yeah, it actually it ties into that of the, first that picture of our a positive view of mental health means that. We should be feeling all the different feelings on the feelings wheel. Uh, My wife is a registered clinical counselor. So, um, whenever I'm slow to name what I'm feeling, the feelings wheel comes out and I can, I can point to what I'm feeling. Um, but something that I think gets lost in Christian discipleship, uh, between two extremes is that discipleship does involve the cultivation of our emotional life. now in one extreme, uh, it becomes emotionalism. That people feel pressured to a certain kind of joy or a certain disposition or temperament. So, you know, you, you hypothetically go to a church where everyone is very enthusiastic and expressive and extroverted. And suddenly, if that's not your temperament, you feel like something's wrong with you. You know, so that's one extreme that I'm not talking about is pure emotionalism. But the other extreme is, and this is more the risk of my own faith background, is Anglican stoicism, where, you know, you you don't talk about feelings much. Uh, you you say the liturgy, you go through the motions. Um, but between that, I think is is the pathway that Jesus shows us is um, he is trying to disciple the way we feel and the way we react to the world, the way we perceive the world, and in turn. Our emotional life. Um, there's a great book that I've I've been rereading, and and I, I think I'll reread it many times. Um, called "Spiritual Emotions: mm. uh, Psychology of Christian Virtues" by Robert Roberts. I'd like to meet his parents and just ask them about that name choice, but Robert Roberts, and um, that's that's his thesis is uh, actually a mark of Christian maturity is a robust emotional life. And if you don't have a robust emotional life, it might actually be sign of perhaps instead of immaturity, malformation that you're you're not yet formed in a way in which you're seeing the world and responding to events or relationships with the appropriate emotions. Um, and so that that to me has been a really liberating approach of saying it's not all joy, it's not all lament, it's not all gratitude, it's not all anger. It's 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 actually moving through that whole experience with Christ and learning to construe the world and see the world in the way that he does. Um, to give one example of, of what that means, um, when the temple gets rebuilt in the Old Testament, uh, in Ezra, there, there's two reactions to one event. So the older generation lament because the temple isn't what it used to be and they're filled with grief. But the younger new generation is rejoicing. And, and I think in that moment, both emotions are appropriate reactions. So God isn't rebuking those who are lamenting saying, well, why aren't you rejoicing over the restoration of the temple? It's actually an appropriate grief. And, and yet God isn't rebuking the young generation for rejoicing that there's finally a temple that they've never had in their life, Uh, that these experiences come together and uh, are shaped by the way in which we see the world and christ wants us to see the world through the lens of his kingdom and that will shape how we feel
1: and respond at the risk of stating the obvious to to that excellent point it, it, god takes each of us where we're at and, th- and there is a, a contextualization right that both responses were equally valid and correct and good there's still something to be learned about understanding another person's position in, in the midst of that and how do we carry our own our own way of viewing the world with with others, and yet all draw are drawn together at the same time into this bigger vision of God's kingdom. But just simply, which I think is sometimes helpful for people in the midst of a crisis, is a mental health crisis, is that your experience is valid. It's you know it's not something that God's scared of. It, it, you haven't fallen off the wagon, even if it it will feel like you have. But actually, you've got great company in the Scriptures. You've got lots of people lamenting. Lots of people despairing in the Psalms and um, repeatedly just read the Old Testament. You'll find all kinds of human experiences and they're all valid and God understands our our context. Um, So, yeah, I just think that's it's a very simple point, but I think it's one that people need to be reminded of.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I do want to hear a bit of your stories of what it's been like to either currently sit in uncertainty or sit in uncertainty in the past when it comes to mental health and mental illness. And so if you'd be able to share kind of briefly, it's kind of hard to summarize life. (laughs) Um, But if you could share a bit of your story, I'd love to hear that. And I'm sure our listeners would too. This is precisely why I wrote out most of my
3: answers, because I know I can speak for a very long time and um, being pithy is a part of my sanctification process. So um, yeah, it was interesting to hear this question about uncertainty because I feel like um, uncertainty has just been one of the few constants in my life in the last year. Um, So for some context, on November 15th of last year, um, there was a category five apartment fire in my building. Um, It ended up resulting in one man losing his life um, and then hundreds of residents being displaced for months, um, including my husband and I. And so for about three months, we had no idea where we'd be living um, or if we would move back to our apartment or would have to look elsewhere. He lived in about three or four different Airbnbs during that time. Um, there was also a couple of car accidents in that time, too. It was it was a wild um, winter, uh, to say the least. Um, and so that was one season of uncertainty that God thankfully brought to a close, and, and I'm grateful for that. But now we're in another season of uncertainty um, as we are pregnant, which is very exciting. Um, about six weeks away from our due date, but um, we're at a very high risk for preterm labor. And so um, at the uh, with the council of, of our midwife and an obstetrician, we were told like, we're lucky if we make it to 35 weeks, which would be next week, um, and that we should really be ready for this baby to come at any time. And so it's been very much in an, another season of uncertainty of always trying kind of being on edge and trying to see like how prepared can we be, but also realizing how little control we have in both those situations, very much exposed how little control we had. And um, very much, especially in regards to the November to March timeline very much affected both of um, our mental health journeys um, and could definitely contributed to both of us being in languishing places of mental health. Um, And so I, I would say that's kind of what uncertainty looks like in my life right now and has looked like in the past, in the recent past, I guess.
0: Can I just ask what languishing kind of looked like for you in that season?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: or in this um, season?
3: So for me, um, uh, as someone who's diagnosed with anxiety and um, a, and depression, but more of the suicidal variety, um, languishing mental health for me um, looks like um, a really intense experience of my mental illness. Um, so like currently I'm on medical leave from being on virtual campus with my students at York so that I could focus more on healing and recovery um, because my thoughts are just really out of control and Mm -hmm. really dark. Um, I think for my husband, who doesn't have a diagnosed mental illness, um, during the time of his languishing, it often looked like some of the symptoms of burnout. it looked like him maybe becoming a bit more numb to his emotions, withdrawing more or becoming more irritable or not finding a lot of joy in the things that would typically be life-giving for him. Um, and so it was, it was hard because I think my languishing was a lot more obvious to people um, but, but his languishing was just, is just as valid. But that's kind of what languishing looked like through those different lenses, I would say, um, in March, uh, November to March. But now, especially for me,
0: I think, um, yeah, my depression is very high. Thanks so much for sharing that with us and for being uh, so vulnerable as well. Uh, you're welcome.
1: Yeah, so now I think we, we always say at Sanctuary, like a person's story is like the holiest of holy grounds, and it just kind of feels like. Holy ground, as you share that. I'm so, so grateful for you sharing that and, and setting a tone of vulnerability. Um, I think for me, uh, I, I was a minister for a number of years. I, I led a church for eight years as a senior pastor, as a youth minister for two years before that. I never received any clinical diagnosis, but I never had the um, bravery, permission to see a doctor and there, it went through my thoughts a couple of times if I went to see a doctor I think they'd prescribe me something just a couple of times I thought that but the truth is I had no framework for understanding what I was going through and I was on the cusp of burnout I was emotionally dead I hadn't felt any emotion in over a year and, and I realised that suddenly one day when my wife said I, I can't remember the last time I saw you smile and in that moment I suddenly realised I haven't felt anything I haven't cried, I haven't laughed, I haven't nothing just dead and um, a few things helped me circumstantially or in, in the providence of God um, we had our first child um, that was like an instant fix of joy in, in terms of just enlivening me to this amazing journey of parenthood that was a very positive thing for, for me and my wife and then um, at, at other times uh, I remember one time we went out for, with some friends for a meal And they weren't members of the church, they were outside the church. And I I can say during my struggles, the the most life I received, the most care I received was from people outside the church, Um, which is, I don't mean to sound damning, it was just the truth. In that place I found I could be real. I was allowed to engage. And I used to come away from having met with my friends from outside the church, just exhilarated. Like I'd say to Annie, that was so much fun. And in truth, what we did, we were just being normal with people, just laughing and, you know, uh, joking together. And it was those things that were clear clues to me, something's not right. And that actually began a journey of stepping out of ministry and taking an extended sabbatical, which is what brought us to Vancouver. So that's, um, yeah, a bit of my story.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that God used fun to help you <laughs> see um that something was wrong and like used it as a form of um, healing in your life. I just feel like Christians are way too serious sometimes. I'm like, man, we just, we just need some fun sometimes.
1: Oh, <laughs> trust me. Uh, it's stuck with me ever since. If people say to me, Dan, uh, Dan what do you like doing? I, what I like doing is going out with friends and laughing together. Mm-hmm. That, that's, the, that's the thing I love the most. And it's, you know, it was with someone who still has pretty inappropriate sense of humor, um, but still makes me laugh. He still messages. Even like yesterday, he messaged me. We haven't seen him for years, but um, yeah, definitely, it's it's been God's grace to me in a in a strange way. He doesn't know that. Maybe I should tell him. But <laughs> it yeah, definitely has been a grace gift.
0: It might encourage the um, the joking, but sometimes you need that, you know. So yeah, Alistair, what about for you?
2: Yeah, my my own journey is similar to Dan's in the fact that am a minister, I'm a pastor and um, my own diagnosis of depression uh, came from challenges within ministry of um, uh, a friend and mentor of mine committing suicide, which sent me into a, a season of prolonged grief and then um, almost burning out from just going through the motions for nine months after that taking a, an extended leave and, and, and getting some help. And then, um, yeah, like a few months later, start, start having anxiety attacks, which I'd never had before. And that's what finally sent me to the doctor and, uh, got, got diagnosed by my, my lovely Irish, uh, doctor who, who kind of took a look at at the, the different tests she administered and said, you know, um, if I was scoring what you score, I don't know how I would get through the day. And that was a really sobering moment because she didn't say it out of condemnation, it was just pure compassion of like, you're not okay. And so, um, my own journey through that, um, this would be back in 2015, I think. Yeah. 2015, um, was immediately getting on medication for a few years and, and through that, um, developing uh, new practices and, and pressing into old practices. So I've, I've seen a counselor for years, even prior to that, but, um, had always similar to what Dan said, like never really gave myself permission to be, to name depression. Like it would cross my mind, like, okay, maybe I'm depressed. Um, well, I'll see how I'm feeling in a few months. And then in a few months I would think, oh, well, I'll see how I'm feeling in a few months and I don't know if it was just a lack of vocabulary or fear, but it just took a long time. Probably ten years of that cycle for me before it kind of came to a breaking point. Uh, but my journey, yeah, involved medicine uh, and and exercise. Or I like how Sanctuary puts it. You actually emphasize activity rather than exercise. I think that's loses some of the uh, I think negative associations of exercise. But activity, um, gratitude was probably the the single most important personal practice I developed. Uh, to pull me out of depression and to to help me in my mental health and so yeah it's been a it's been a journey i would say compared to where i was five years ago uh, i'm in a i am in a flourishing place and i have, have good support and good relationships and uh, have not had a prolonged experience of depression in quite some time it doesn't mean i don't experience days of depression or even weeks but uh, nothing like before, where it was months and months and months of feeling close to nothing, and and similar to um, to others, my my own experience of depression involves just a a deep seated nihilism that nothing really matters, nothing I'm doing makes a difference, and and that's been stirred quite deeply in COVID because you know overnight I went from being a pastor to a televangelist, and I was not very excited about that it's not what i signed up for Um, and i really started to wrestle with like what is my purpose as a pastor and what am i doing through this and how do i lead people through a pandemic that i myself am going through and and again choosing to to lead out of places of vulnerability and lead out of the unknown that we're all going through but to also stop worrying about purpose so much and to just focus on the joy of a job well done. I was reading this memoir of a farmer and saying, look, like if you try to look at the purpose of farming, it's just, it's so abstract in some ways because you're ultimately trying to yield a crop and, and, and give it away. Um, but the day-to-day work is redundant and mundane and repetitive. And, and his journey was one of finding joy in the job well done, even if you have to do it all over again tomorrow. And so especially through COVID that's been a lot of what I've been trying to do is just press into what what is the work set before me today and how do I how do I just do that work well and in doing that work well finding yeah moments of joy um, but yeah really in this season struggling with what yeah, what's my purpose and what's my what meaning can I make of this as. If I look too far out right now, it just doesn't help me. So, do you
0: think you mentioned gratitude? Do you think that the practice of gratitude in the midst of um, a dark season is like helpful, or is that like, um, I don't know, like what's that word, negative positivity or toxic positivity? Um, it's something that I'm actually attempting to practice myself is gratitude like every night. Think of five things, even if it's like this pie was delicious and thank God for this pie, you know? Um, but yeah, what is that balance um, between practicing gratitude and uh, toxic positivity?
2: So I would, I would never want to generalize that every single person should practice gratitude. Um, if someone attempts that practice and it's a negative experience for them, they should listen to that and, and not try to force something um, on themselves. But What I do find hopeful and encouraging about gratitude is um, Robert Emmons, who pioneered a lot of the actual scientific research into gratitude, uh, really took the experiment to extreme. So he was starting to discover that gratitude is one of the few things that can change your set point for happiness. So psychologists would say, how happy you feel in a given day is probably how happy you're ever going to feel. That there's a set point you always return to. and, and that sounds a little depressing, um, but the, there's a lot of studies that show it to be quite true. But Emmons started to discover that gratitude is one of these things that seems to reset that set point at a higher place. And he was conducting you know, control groups and studies. And they said, well, let's take it further. And so they actually went into a hospital with people who have uh, chronic incurable illnesses and asked them to start practicing gratitude. I think it was for six weeks. And all of them had a marked improvement immediately. But what was interesting is six months later, one year later, all the people who had practiced gratitude, whether they continued it or not, were doing better than the control group who didn't practice gratitude. So I would actually suggest that it is precisely if you're in a dark place that you should practice gratitude. And and here's the thing is, it doesn't mean you feel grateful initially but it's that in choosing to try to name things in which you can give thanks for that over time gratitude follows so very rarely in my own practice do i immediately feel grateful it's actually the the practice of naming these things over time cultivates the emotion of gratitude Um, and that's what's encouraging about the practice And, and so for myself having really engaged this practice for five years. I've, I've really seen it change my whole worldview of more and more. I see life as a gift to be received, Um, not something to, to manipulate or gain from, but just a gift to receive even, even the negative and sad experiences. Um, and so personally, I would encourage someone to try gratitude, especially if they're in a season of depression. But give them the grace to say, hey, if all you can be grateful for is toothpaste, great. Like, I'm really sincerely and I think Dan and I talked about this a while ago, like sincerely thankful for um, modern dentistry. (laughs) Like, if if I did not have modern dentistry, I would only do (laughs) podcast interviews. There would be no in-person showing my face. And And. But and, and we can laugh about that, right? But and, and it brings about a bit of levity. And so that's what the gift of gratitude is, is you, you build on that. Well yeah, I'm thankful for I'm sincerely thankful for modern dentistry. And that I can afford a toothbrush and, and you, you build from there.
0: Yeah, mm.
1: uh, as am, as am I. I think it implicit in the question that you asked, Selena, is a, a really valid point that very often these very helpful terms or practices can get co-opted and turned into something else subtly. So you know, it's it's like kind of like that person in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of depression, just the depths of depression. And it's like if another person tells me to be grateful, I'm gonna, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do. But there can be this this um, disconnect from where a person is at, which isn't is the opposite of what Alice has just done. You know that, but but some people, you know. Well-meaning people, well-intentioned people, can offer all kinds of advice on how to how to fix your problem. And even calling it a problem is a is a problem. Um, but you know they'll say, "Oh, well, it's very simple." You know the way I got over depression: you eat uh, seven spoons of flaxseed a day, uh, you take uh, cod liver oil, you you know you do your man your your gratitude uh, journaling, you do, and they give you this prescribed recipe for success, and um. It's just not true. It's just like a, a person's, a, an individual person's experience of life is totally different from another's. There are principles that I think sh- people should, as they're able, as they feel brave or, or strong enough to practise, practises like gratitude. Um, uh, and, and even like a term like resiliency is a, is a term that I think is often, is used, but it's getting hooks attached to it, where you go, mm. what do you really mean when you're talking about resiliency? Is this a, Is this like, a, an acceptable way of saying "man up," because that, when when I think about practicing resiliency, I'm I'm thinking how are we learning how to love and care for ourselves? How are we learning how to put practices in place so that we can flourish? Um, I've heard other people use that term resiliency in a way that I, I I'm not sure I'm quite on board with their usage of it. So I think there are people who possibly are using gratitude in the wrong in the wrong way as kind of like positive thinking and be positive and don't let yourself feel down um that's not what it's about it's it's what alistair said but i think there are some people who, who do use it in that way
2: the importance of sharing experience with one another but not sharing solution or at least not starting mm. there so like I'm, I'm i'm way more willing to listen to what worked for someone once they've actually sat and listened well to my experience um, but when people start, like the moment that you, you mentioned, like oh, I've, I struggle through depression, and if they immediately go to their personal recipe, um, it's actually an avoidance. Um, yeah, it's, it's an immediate reaction to discomfort, uh, and it's an unhealthy reaction. And and I it used to make me really angry when people did that, but I, I think more and more I have compassion for people. Um, it just shows their own discomfort with yeah doing the best emotions. they can and and so i actually gently just call people out mm. um, when they do that to me i just say hey it sounds like you're uncomfortable with what i'm feeling mm. and i just leave it there and sit quietly and, and watch them slowly wrestle through what what that stirs in them and again sometimes we don't have the resilience for that and i think sometimes um if someone is, is not sensitive to your own experience, um, all you can do is, is put up a boundary. Uh, you mm. don't, you don't have to press in and, and invite correction. Yeah. Um, but, um, that, that need to be, to sit together first.
1: Hmm. I'm, I'm interested to know what kind of advice Sanar has had. So have you ever had some bad advice from people on how to, uh, get better?
0: oh
3: (laughs) oh oh memories (laughs) um i'm i'm i was reflecting and i'm like oh i think i'm still angry and it's probably not a righteous anger anymore as alistair was sharing and so um yeah i think from some really well-meaning um people who love jesus and who have his spirit um and i do love them um but it was it was kind of like um, from people without a diagnosed mental illness kind of saying something along the lines of, okay, you need to think better. So write out all your bad thoughts and then find scripture to combat it because um, that's how you renew your mind. And then when you do that, you'll be better. Um, now that process itself is not problematic. It's um, very redeemed perspective. I think of cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's something um, my therapist and I do together. the The problem was the assumption that it could be done so easily, and I, I think a part of being mentally ill is that it doesn't come easily. <laughs> it's um, the way I think is not healthy, and so what you think might take an hour actually takes five months, yeah. and so. Um, I think it it wasn't a bad suggestion, and it wasn't, I knew it was, the intent of the heart wasn't to make me feel um, dismissed or like a failure for just not being able to do that fast enough, but the impact um, did have that, and then we had to have, this was just about a year ago, and then um, I had to have like a kind of conflict resolution conversation about that. Um, with them. Um, Hmm. I've also just had experiences when, where my mental illness has just been flat out denied to me, Um, Hmm. um, or my wrestling with suicidality has been made to feel like an excuse for bad behavior, or, Hmm. um, or just this isn't something I'm really feeling, I'm lying, or I'm just trying to get attention and so um, that is an individual where I am, um, that's, that's one circumstance where I put up that boundary. <laughs> I was like, I just can't interact with this individual um, mm. anymore for longer than maybe a few minutes at a time because you are no longer, well, they weren't safe really to begin with, but it was more clear after that interaction that they weren't someone who, who was safe to be around, if yeah. that makes sense so it's been a range from really well-meaning people to um i don't think well-meaning people hmm. um
1: there's a there's a few really interesting points there isn't there because one of them is the way that certain traditions i'm from a non i'm from a, like a charismatic church background that's the church i used mm-hmm. to lead so and i'm very much still charismatic in my beliefs uh, i'm probably at the conservative end of that spectrum but i'm still happy to say i'm charismatic um Reluctantly charismatic, there you go. But but, um, in that tradition, I've heard similar, similar things, and it's this idea that scripture can only be applied in an abstract way. It's like the renewing of the mind is like this instantaneous thing that happens when you come to faith, or you pray this special prayer and your mind's renewed. Now, I'm not denouncing that, actually. That may be true for people, for some people, and fantastic, and I'm open to that. But the renewing of the mind, as you've said, can look like cognitive... Behavioral therapy. It can look like uh, eight months of working with a therapist or eight years of working with a therapist to literally change the neuropathways pathways in your brain. And neuroplasticity is something we've only learned about in the last 20 years, way before many of our doc- entrenched doctrines were created. And yet, God knows about neuroplasticity because God made us. So mm-hmm. I think it's interesting how often they only get applied in abstract ways, but they actually can apply in very concrete, sort of scientific ways. Um, And the other thing that I think came through from what you're saying is I think of uh, John Swinton is is one of Sanctuary's ambassadors. He's a a practical theologian at the University of Aberdeen. And he said once, um, very often for people's experiences of mental illness, we don't frame it vocationally. So if someone is diagnosed with cancer, he said there's almost like a vocation of cancer. If someone gets cancer, there's tons of empathy, there's tons of compassion. If you can get through it, the very difficult, painful time of treatments, so there's this sense in which we frame it and say, God, is, God will teach you things through this and you'll come out of it stronger. Um, whereas with mental illness, very often it's just denied. It's just like there's no framing of it as, actually God will be revealing things to you that we wanna learn from. And, and how can I listen to you and your experiences? Um, and that's really interesting, again, when we go back to the Psalms of Lament, we have this framework of people who are in the depths, who at some point get a vision of God in the midst of their darkness with them in it, and suddenly they turn to worship. And it's almost like that. Those Psalm, the Psalmists couldn't have learned that stuff about who God is without going through the depths. So there's a redemptive value to that difficult experience, which is still hard for people to hear in the midst, but it does at least mean we don't have to give very overly simplistic answers for why the world is difficult for some people. Instead, we could just listen, listen to their experiences.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: One of the challenges there, Dan, is that we fail to see the mind as part of the body.
0: Hmm.
2: You know, we we have this kind of abstract notion that the mind is is separate from the body, and and it. It's distinct from the body for sure, but it is within the body. Uh, we have embodied minds, so to speak. And, and if we could see that, then I think there would be a greater acceptance that mental illness is a physiological challenge. Mm. So if someone is born and they have a crippled leg their whole life, let's say, um, no one's going to go to that person and say, hey, you should overcome this by running a marathon. Mm. And that's precisely how some people approach mental illness is here's all the things you should do. It'll make you better. And It's like, hey, I, I can't even do the first step there. But then yeah. we swing the other way and we start saying, well, let's pray for healing. And, mm. and sure, some people are healed instantaneously. I, I don't see it often, but it happens. And I'm not going to close the door on that, that experience. But mm. the person with, born with the crippled leg who is not instantaneously healed and has had those prayers and been told to try to pray different ways and go to this different faith healer or this conference or you name it at the end of the day that person has a vocation of limping
1: mm.
2: of what you're saying and and discovering what it looks like to go through life with that limp mm. and and i'm I'm charismatic with my seatbelt on and, and 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 so I have to figure out how to balance those expectations in scripture where we, we want to pray in earnest for healing. Mm. And yet so often we turn it into a shortcut or we yeah. become short sighted that all of the healings in scripture are always signs of the kingdom to come.
1: Yeah. And yeah, that's very good.
2: And I try to point out even within my own church that the person who's healed of blindness, we forget may develop cataracts later in life. Mm. And Lazarus who was raised from the dead had to die a second time yeah and we 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 just gloss over the bigger picture and because we get so caught up in the resolution and the resolution is good and it's beautiful and it's important and it is a sign of what the kingdom will be like when it comes in its fullness but um i i fear sometimes not enough work is done to uh discover that vocation of cancer discover that vocation of limping or discover that vocation of mental illness
1: Mm. uh
2: and and the mystery right of the meaning that can be found in it
1: yeah you raise an interesting point with jesus's healings because often that's the one that's leveled by by well-meaning people um they'll say well jesus just healed everyone who was who was sick i mean first of all i wasn't there so i don't know if he healed everyone but certainly there's this sign in the scriptures that jesus did a lot of biological physiological and and healing for mental health challenges there there's a couple of um instances where that seems to happen um, but the interesting thing is the healings jesus did one one really interesting theory is that when jesus did healings it wasn't just always about the signs of the power of god or the signs of the kingdom it was about restoring or fundamentally it was about restoring people to community restoring people to relationship so you think of the woman in bleeding she would have been ostracized her whole life so jesus removes that barrier She's now connected to community again. People have to listen to her for the first time ever. Um, And uh, start to see the scriptures and apply healings. And you begin to see again and again, Jesus is restoring people to their rightful place so that these inequalities in the culture at the time, everything's balanced. The people who are low are lifted up. The people who are lifted up are lowered. And so everything becomes, becomes level. And I think that's a really interesting way of reading it. And when you think about our responsibility as people of faith, how can we remove barriers for people in the midst of a mental health crisis so that they are elevated in our congregation so that they feel part of this congregation it could be through immediate visible healing but it could also be through allowing them space to talk about their experiences from the front of the church it could be about us just simply giving them a voice to share their story in the midst of crisis without any nice neat resolution to it it could simply be that which Again, as I've said, 40% of the Psalms, the songbook of the Bible, are people lamenting. So um, I think there are other ways we can remove the barriers that Jesus did through visible healing. Um, I think there are lots of ways we can do that and we should think about that. How do we do that as a church?
0: Mm -hmm. That's a a great question to be thinking about. One thing is as you're bringing up the Psalms, I can't help but think of a Psalm that I really like that is uh, the Lord is near to the uh, brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And I think in this discussion of like, of course, when I'm suffering with my mental health um, and languishing, I want to get better. I don't want to sit in it. <laughs> I am the person who's like, okay, let's fast forward this part. Or, um, mm. you know, the person who's crying out, how long, oh Lord, and why isn't it done yet? Um, you know, and I think that um, there is you guys have kind of brought this up. There is a reality that I think we want healing, but I think that God actually wants us to sometimes experience him in the pain of it all um, and experience his closeness to us because he comes, um, he's always with us, but there is something um, unique to the experience of suffering and God being near us at the same time. I think it's because, we no longer have the things that we are typically dependent upon um, that f- forces us to actually be dependent upon God or dependent upon community in new ways that we wouldn't have experienced if we weren't in a place of um, languishing. Am I, am I making sense?
3: Hmm. I think on a mass level, that's what the pandemic did to the world. Um, I think um, people were like, wow, like so many of the things I loved, sports, going out to restaurants or um, being able to like be in person with people like have been stripped away. What, what do I have now? Um, and, and I think the, the hope of the, the Christian, the one who has believed upon Jesus is, no, we actually we still have everything we need right now. Um, And this is an opportunity to lean into him and to depend. And so it was interesting seeing all this happening on a macro level when I felt like it was something I had had already been experiencing on a micro level. And so I think in some ways the, the pandemic wasn't as earth shattering for me because I had already been in that practice of like, I can only depend on Jesus anyways. Now I can only depend on Jesus and not leave my house and get a DoorDash pass um, so that I don't have to pay for delivery. But another thing that you said, Selena, that um, really stood out to me was the idea of like wanting to fast forward through the pain and the suffering or just fast forward through the messy bits and I remember I would say that, like, oh, I just wish I could just fast forward to like my wedding day, but not have to go through the whole process of like, who like dating, and or oh, I'd love to just fast forward through this pregnancy and just have my baby. Um, but I recently watched a movie with my husband the other day. I love movies, and I do believe God just loves to speak to me through them, like parables. And this particular one, um, Click, like he has this remote control that allows him to Um, manipulate life and he often uses it to fast-forward and one thing he does like he fast-forwards through a cold one weekend because uh, he's like I just hate having this but he misses the whole weekend and then eventually later on in life he gets like cancer but it's like a six-year process of overcoming this but because he had fast-forwarded through sickness already he fast forwarded through those six years, and so he ended up losing six years of life, six years of experience, six years of, of memories, um, because he didn't want to sit in the messy, um, mm. ugly parts of life. And he would fast forward through arguments with his wife, he would fast forward through all these um, the, the things that were just taking too long, or that were uncomfortable, but then you realize he he didn't really live any of his life like you've missed decades and I just remember God being like not like if I let you fast forward through this hard pregnancy then you wouldn't have all these memories of your husband caring for you um, or feeling your baby move or um, or any number of, of the beautiful, intimate, bittersweet things that still happened in the messy times. Um, I'd fast forward through a lot of experiences of just feeling God's nearness. Um, like you said, Selena, that intimacy. That there's a unique intimacy that, that absolute dependence on God brings to life that it would be terrible to fast forward through. Um, even if I wouldn't have chosen uh, moments of crises and suffering, um, I wouldn't choose to get rid of them either. If it meant I'd lose all the other things that came with them, I think it's a hard thing to say. <laughs> and I'm saying it honestly now, I might not say it honestly in 20 minutes, but it is a truth that um, I think that movie helped me see. So I'm thankful that God is willing to speak to me through anything at times.
0: <laughs> Can I ask a question based on that, um, based on your answers, just thinking about how when you are suffering, it actually though, like scripture says that the Lord is near, sometimes we don't want to go to the Lord (laughs) or we don't want to go to others. Right. Like you're not doing well. You just want to be left alone to your misery kind of thing. Um, And sometimes I'm definitely like that. And so how do we, how do we work in the midst of the darkness to actually seek, to go to God or to seek him out um, or to seek other people out when um, we know that's probably what's good for us, but we have no desire to do so.
1: I think I have a suspicion Alice is going to have some good things to say about this, because this is about our, I think this is about our ecclesiology. How do we, what do we believe the role of the church is? Because if if I'm in a position where I can't hold hope for myself, and I can't, I can't approach God. I mean, the the truth is, if I believe scripture, God is close to me, whether I like it or not. Um, Now I have permission to ignore him, I have the ability to, as much as I'm able, Um, but the role of the church is to hold and support people, Uh, and in that sense we're part of something much bigger, and this whole individualised culture that we live in places such an emphasis on me and my personal walk, but actually in those moments if you have a decent ecclesiology suddenly it makes sense because you go i'm held by this community this bigger community we are siblings we are children uh, with our with our father who's watching over us so i think others holding hope for you others praying for you even if you don't know it but um someone reading scripture to you someone you know um i think those things are, are critical
2: it's one of those um chicken before the egg kind of questions um I would say there's much in life that I do because it's what you need to do. And I have no desire to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I don't really enjoy brushing my teeth to go back to that analogy, (laughs) but I do it. Um, You know, I don't, um, yeah, you don't enjoy, enjoy enduring a cold, but you do it. And, and so sometimes it is that stubborn doing what we know we need to do, even though we don't want to do it. Um, The challenge is, of course, sometimes you don't have the, even the capacity to do that. And, and so the hope is if you are rooted in a a healthy church, there will be people who, who know you and care about you, who check in on you, who, who can identify that all is not well. Um, The challenge is that often, I think those sort of relationships are languishing in the church that, people have not yet gotten to that level of, of being known by others that they end up languishing alone. So it is a complicated thing where I don't want to put the, the onus on the individual, but nor do I think we can put the onus on the community. Like there, there is this kind of dynamic relationship where there is a mutual um, accountability to one another. Mm. Um, so when people, for example, as a pastor, when people say to me, why haven't you checked in on me? I often respond, why why haven't you reached out? And it is that challenge of, of we want others to reach out to us, but others can also be oblivious that we need them to reach out to us. Mm. And, and, and so changing those expectations in community of saying, you know what, if no one's reaching out to you, it's probably not because they don't care it's probably because they're caught up in their own lives and are unaware of your challenges mm-hmm. and your need. And and so it's hard, right? Because you don't wanna put all of the onus on the individual who's struggling. And yet often the first step I've seen in many people's recovery is that courage to name, hey, I'm not okay and I, I need help here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that opens the opportunities for for others to step in and, and hold on to faith when they can't or to hold on to hope when they can't. Mm. As for why we resist God being near when we need God to be near, um, David Richards, Canadian author uh, in his book, God Is, um, is making a, an argument for why he still believes um, despite all the evidence not to believe. and. Um, it's a very interesting book because I don't, I don't think he's making an argument in the way most evangelicals would expect someone to make an argument. Like he's not, he's not proposing this profound flourishing faith. That's like passionate for the Lord. I mean, he's just talking about like belief in God at all in a, in a pretty, what I think some evangelicals might call shallow belief, but belief. And there's this throwaway line he has in the book that really gripped me. And he said, um, every person's inner monologue is always a dialogue with their creator. Hmm. We just fail to see it. Hmm. So no matter what we're going through, it's always, that inner monologue is always a dialogue. And to me, that shift changes how you pray. Um, Changes how you, even if you don't want the Lord to be near, that statement is just one framework away from being a conversation
3: mm-hmm.
2: i mean mm-hmm. i've told my wife i don't want her to be near me right now and our relationship is fine
0: like mm-hmm.
2: you know it, it wasn't antagonistic or or malintent it's just like hey i need some space right now it might not even because we're having a conflict i'm just mm-hmm. not ready to talk about it yet or whatever it is mm-hmm. and to know that god is big enough to handle that like God's not freaked out that we might need a bit of time to process before we fully engage in that dialogue with him.
1: Mm. I wonder, Alistair, and particularly to your former point, if there's an indictment, not that I'm down on trying to be down on everything, but just being real about there's an indictment on our culture, which has made individualism king, like Mm -hmm. autonomy is king. Whereas I would say interdependence the scriptures portray interdependence as king right that's a higher goal, a loftier goal is to be connected to a community, and I say that as someone who's i mean i'm I'm a classic man of my generation right I'm a bit of an island, I don't have many friends, but I'm just confessing you know I find it hard to match up this individualistic culture to what we see in scripture which is which is you know community and, and, and connection and relation relationality, which is one of the fundamental characteristics of a human person, is that we are relational. We are made in the image of a relationship, the Father, Son and Spirit, and our wellness is more defined by our relationships. And one of the most damning things I think is in my own story of languishing, and I'm not I'm not pointing the finger at anyone else, I'm pointing it at myself, but I could be emotionally dead for a year and still lead a church. Like what, no no one, no one knew. That's no one's mm-hmm. fault, but it's kind of damning. It's like how, and, and this is a reoccurring thing that we have tragically when people die by suicide in ministry and, and they do, and, and mm. people suddenly leave the faith or they run off, have an affair or something. These stories are so common and it's like, how have we created a system where someone can get to that place of struggle without anyone knowing? Mm. Um, yeah, I don't have an answer, but it's it's kind of tragic.
2: I think this is where I press into Bonhoeffer a lot. Um, Life Together, he, in his book Life Together, he talks about um, the danger of idealism in the church. Uh, he he goes as far as actually to say God hates the visionary dreamer, which <laughs> I think any visionary pastor really needs to wrestle with. But what he goes on to say is, you know, because the visionary takes their ideals and demands them upon themselves, the community, and God. And when those ideals are not realized, they blame themselves, the community, or God. Hmm. And the challenge is we can look at scripture and there's all these beautiful principles and, and ideals of what the functioning Christian community can be but we rip them out of their context. So when Paul says like, forgive one another, we forget that there's gonna be reasons that you need to forgive one another bear one another's burdens we forget there's going to be loads that are inconvenient to bear so we kind of take them and we make them ideals rather than realistic instruction Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and and so i think some of the challenge um and this is going to initially sound pessimistic but it's not is i think when we are tasked with this hope to bring change in some area we fall into idealism and we think if only the church could get to a place where this is no longer a problem. And I, I just don't think it's going to happen. And it's, it's only because I think we're always going to live in this imperfect community. So while we can improve some things, uh, and, and let's say in this generation, we improve the conversation around mental health. Mm. Um, great. Now let's move to anti-racism. Yeah. And let's say we improve that conversation great now let's move to stewarding the the environment and and so the challenge in the in the christian community within the local body of christ is that you have all these things happening and 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 we like to think that the christian community is somehow buffered from culture Mm. but we're more like a room within a house if the house is culture we're like this room within it and And we're equally influenced by all these things and the brokenness of them and the beauty of them. And, and then as Christians, we get frustrated, like, why isn't the church better than this? It's like, well, the world's not better than this. And yes, we can start to embody and give signs of a better way, but it's still going to be an imperfect, better way. Mm. Um, It it, will hopefully improve. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to change these things, but I think, Changing our idealism to something more um, honest, yeah. while continuing the pursuit of change because it is important to seek the ways of the kingdom in all of these areas. Mm. But I can confess as a pastor, you know, there's this pressure. Like, Alistair, why aren't you talking about stewardship of you know creation care? Why aren't you doing more about anti-racism? Why aren't we doing more about mental health? Why, why, why? Right? And it's like, well, because I can't. Now we're going to do what we can, right? And we're going to try our best, but even just to navigate all those conversations. And in a Canadian context, let's talk about reconciliation and land acknowledgement and 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 all of that. It's just too much. And that's where we have to step back and say, okay, this is why we need a savior. And, and creating interdependent communities around our savior um, that are still communities um, living in the tension of a broken world that's in the process of being redeemed. And and so I don't know, I guess I just always have this expectation that no matter how much we improve, there will always be pain and struggle and disappointment because of what it means to be alive
0: um, mm-hmm.
2: in a broken world.
0: hmm.
3: And I think a key there is to not let yourself fall into bitterness and cynicism um, when you realize that. Uh, like someone very close to me has been really struggling to have just like consistent Christian community in his life and he's done all the things like he's reached out, he's been clear about what his needs are um, and, and something he recently expressed is like I feel like my, my, my troubles are more consistent than people's initiative taking and people's care and I don't know how much more I can communicate that I need that consistency and that I need that care. And so maybe they just don't care. And um, and as someone who knows, I don't like band-aids over things. It was just a matter of listening and trying to like hold space for those feelings. But it is a really, like the opposite of idealism, or not opposite, but a contrast to idealism can be that that cynicism, that this is never gonna change, that people just don't care about about me or, or what I'm actually going through. Um, even if you are doing the reaching out, even if you are communicating clearly. And I I think it's just, um, it's hard to sit in the already and not yet of life and to sit like we we do have access to to, to the kingdom of heaven and to the spirit to be, um, to say no to sin, to love unselfishly, but we're not gonna ever be perfect at it until glorification, until there is no presence of sin. And and so, how do we give a foreshadow of the glory to come, while while sitting in the grit that that we still have right now? Um, it's hard. It is so hard. And so, um, but just if anyone's listening, and, and you've you've already ditched idealism, but you're you're kind of just like cynical right now. Um, I I just do want to encourage you that like, uh, there there is a glory to come, and and and. God does care about his church, and, and God is going to be continually making his bride's dress more white over time. Um, and it, it's just going to take a lot of patience and, and long-suffering, I think the KJV translates patience. It's going to take some long-suffering for that. But I beg you, please don't yield to cynicism, um, because you you rob yourself of the foreshadow of glory, I think, when you do that. Um, Kind of to Selena's earlier question, though, um, of like, we we need to be near God, but we don't want to be. We need to be near the church, but we don't want to be. That's very much where I'm at right now. And so in the times when I just haven't sought God out, he'll pursue me through a slightly trashy movie, like The Click, Mm -hmm. Um, and he just won't leave me. Um, He'll make his presence very known. He'll be like, this is a dialogue we're having. And if you're not going to listen to me through all these other ways, we will have this dialogue through this movie. <laughs> and I am super thankful that he um, he's steadfast in his pursuit of me. Um, but I'd also say what Alistair said about how we brush our teeth even though we don't really want to. Um, I think that's how sometimes we have to look at our devos um, or quiet times or whatever you call them. Even if it's just, I am gonna take these five minutes to read one verse um, to and pray it and I'm going to do that, I'm going to build that into my schedule. Um, I'm going to build small group or connecting with believers into my schedule. So even if I don't want to reply to anybody's texts, I know that Wednesday evening I'm going to be with other believers. And even if I don't say anything about how I'm doing, I need to be with God's people. Mm. Um, I think you create, um, be intentional about having those spaces where you're more in tune with the inner dialogue, I'd say, um, even though you don't want it. Um, And it's best to actually have those things in place before you're in crisis so that you're not scrambling to do that when you have no motivation to. Um, But I think I've been blessed by having some things that were very fixed in my schedule that um, put me in the presence of God tangibly, even when I don't want to be there. and so that's, that's just my little bit of advice, but please don't take it as a, a recipe for success in any way, <laughs> especially if some of those spaces um, of small group or other believers, if those might not actually be the safest places for your mental health journey at the time. Mm. Um, and that requires some discernment, but hopefully you have at least one or two friends who have the Holy Spirit who can help you discern that.
1: Yeah. Or you can run the sanctuary course in your small group. Just just throw that out there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> or you can read my book about how to have spiritual rhythms. There you go. I think people uh, should do
0: both of those things. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but I think you pointed out something really important. And and it's you're talking to a friend, and they're telling you that they're doing everything they can to reach out and no one is hearing them. Um and yet sometimes we can fail to see that. We're saying that to someone else who's hearing us and listening with us and journeying with us. That's one of the challenges is to, go, going back to Bonhoeffer, he says, if you, if you even know one other follower of Jesus, you should thank God from the bottom of your heart. And so again, we come, come with these expectations that we should have a whole community And everyone should be reaching out and caring for one another. And it should look like this, this, and this. And, and again, there's some justification for those, those expectations from scripture. And yet, if you have just one person you can do this journey with, like that should be a cause for gratitude and rejoicing. And it's not a guilt trip thing. It's just to say, acknowledge, even if you have someone to complain to about the failures of your church, that that is a huge gift and that is enough.
1: Um, that thing of, sort of just realistic expectations is a major thing in our culture where we're often held up the perfect airbrushed, photoshopped image and told, be like this. Um, just this principle, both on the the macula and on the micro, both both in the church and for an individual, is like just small steps in the right direction. That's the, and I think that's a rule for life in, in anything, right? You're, you're not going to become great at any hobby unless you make small steps. So I think having realistic expectations of ourselves and also as the church having realistic expectations of others because you know if you take a human being who's been traumatized and abused their whole life if you you take a give you an example a person who has been in abusive relationships their whole life abuses a child abused abused by men throughout their life then they come to faith they join a church and all of the staff in the church are men they're going to probably find it quite hard to go and confess or talk to a man on their own. That's not to say they won't ever be able to, but they're probably gonna find that hard. And that's because trauma does this to us. Um, And that's not that person's fault. That's something that's happened to them. So I think we have to accept with some people, and that may be an abstract example, but the point is we have to have realistic expectations of other people in their context and their story. And not everyone is gonna be a, you know, we're not all gonna be Billy Graham evangelists. Um and I but. think
2: I think in the way that we have to repent of individualism, we have to repent mm. of exceptionalism. Mm. You know, as Canadians we like to think we're not like our American uh neighbors to the south and, and yet this American exceptionalism that we're the best nation, uh really does influence Canada. Like we think we're the best nation and and really American exceptionalism is a reaction to colonial exceptionalism. Yeah. And, yeah. and so exceptionalism is an incre- incredibly damaging view mm. and the church, we can accidentally think, well, this is God's gift to the world. We're the exception. You know, we, we should be better than everything else. And it's like, yeah. no, the only exceptional gift to the world is our savior. Now his mm. church is important and it's and, and, and plan a for redemption in the world, but uh, we're not exceptional. Hmm. Uh, only God is, only Christ is, and, and, and so I think just as much work has to be done to disentangle from these narratives of exceptionalism that skew our expectations, skew our ideals, um, and, and, and to instead pursue what it looks like to plead with Christ for his kingdom to come in our midst, to see relationships and communities formed more by his rule and reign, um, and to go in that journey one step at a time.
0: I can't help but um, remember a season where I was at a bad place and um, I was having a hard time where, like, my church community um, either didn't see it or wasn't really coming in or I wasn't showing it. I have no idea. And I kept trying to figure out, like, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with them? (laughs) Like, whose fault is this? And a counselor told me, maybe— those people aren't actually the right people for you in this season and God has other people for you um and actually just hearing that kind of freed me from blame like blaming myself or blaming other people it was more like oh like maybe there's just there's just others out there that I'm not looking at and some of it was pre-existing friends who, who weren't in my church but who were friends maybe for me, it was a smaller group of people. It wasn't every person who could enter into my pain and what I was going through in the moment. And it allowed me to actually release those who were unable from like, that need to fill me in a particular way where they just, they they were doing that for other people. Like, they, but they, like, they weren't able to do that for me. Um, but maybe that's because God didn't choose them to do that for me, but that there were other there was a community out there and I actually did end up making newer friends uh, in that season um, that I think actually did kind of help me um, more so and have kind of continued to be friends from that season. Whereas like um, I even like shifted churches in that season as well. And so there were just all these things that I didn't know that God was going to do and how he's provided for me um, through different people, through a different church, um, that I I honestly was just like, no, I want these people in this church. And um, I think my counselor's advice kind of helped me recognize like God was going to meet me um, just in a different way than I had thought, which I think did help me like break down some of that exceptionalism maybe, or just, um, uh, putting that expectation, that high expectation on particular people who couldn't actually meet it because they are limited human beings. mm mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I had—I mean—that's a—that goes back to my point earlier about the the place I found life in the midst of my crisis were with people outside of the church. I don't like admitting that. I'm a—I'm a church man. I love the church, um, but you know, I, I remember one time I was at my uh, godson's um, christening party afterwards, which um, the, the our friends are not practicing. They don't attend church. Um, But they got him christened at a Church of England church in England. And afterwards it was, let's go back to their house and drink lots of beer. And that was how you celebrate a christening in in Britain, um, at least in in our friends. And they invited all their friends over. I think we were the only churchy people there. And there was this group of guys standing around the fire. And some of them were just huge. They're just like these great big men, all played rugby, big guys. And very burly, masculine men. And they're all drinking beer. And one of them to one side, who I'd been getting to know, really nice guy, just told me his story of, um, of being, he was abused as a child. And he was only, he was triggered by that trauma as an adult when his then girlfriend was sharing her story of being abused. And he suddenly realized that he had been abused. I said, what did you do? He said, well, I had therapy. And the first thing I did was I went with all of my friends here, these group of guys, and I told them. What happened to me as a child. And um, very vulnerable thing to do. And I said, What did they say? And he said, do You know what? They all they said to me was, We're here for you. If ever you need to talk to us, you talk to us, and you know, big respect for you. And that was it. And and, and ever since he was accepted as he was, with this imperfect story, and he said, The thing I've learned through therapy is if people won't accept me as I am, then forget them he didn't use that word he used other words but but he actually came to a place of I'm not saying that that's the right way to look at it but in some ways there's wisdom there in him going I'm not gonna live my life trying to be something I'm not I'm gonna accept who I am and and work the best with what I have there was something so freeing in hearing him say that and I thought I wish my experience my implicit experience of the church was the same and I'm as much pointing a finger at myself there wasn't this pressure to feel like everything had to be neat and tidy And I just saw someone who was free. And so God spoke to me through someone who, you know, who, as far as I'm aware, wasn't part of the church. But um, only God knows that, I guess. Mm
0: -hmm. It sounds like God has met you um, through, he met you through these like unbelieving friends. And there is an aspect where God meets us through community. Um, What are other ways that God meets us in the midst of uncertainty?
2: Yeah, I think, I think, as Dan said, the, the primary means for me has always been relationship. Um, And I think moving out of the category of maybe believing or unbelieving relationship, but just to um, meaningful connection. Um, And that meaningful connection can happen in a variety of ways um, through a variety of people, um, whether there's the context of a a lasting friendship or even acquaintance that God can appear through relationship because that, that's fundamentally a, a reflection of the image of God uh, to be made in, in the image of the triune God. Um, for me, uh, it's, it's often been the Psalms for me. Uh, that's, that's just how I navigate my emotional life. I mean, there's lots of other places to go in scripture, but when I'm feeling impacted by the uncertainty of the world, I can trust that I'm going to find many Psalms that can articulate that experience. And, and just that, even if I can't pray the words for myself, <clears throat> just that experience of seeing it named in in scripture is always really, really powerful for me. Um, and uh, for me, again, going back to relationship, just intentionally choosing one or two friendships that are the friendships that are my go-tos um, where they're people I'm intentionally um, trying to bear my soul to, and and I can't remember which book it, it was, but I was reading about soul care, and the the analogy was like the soul is 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 much like a um, a wild animal hiding in a bush. You know, if 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 you had a if you came up on a leopard in a bush, it would be a mistake to to charge the bush to try to get the leopard to appear. Uh, you know, the, the leopard's either going to flee or pounce on you. But if you wait, the leopard will appear in due course. And I found that to be true of my soul in relationships where I need relationships where there's enough waiting and connecting that my soul can appear. And then I can really name what's going on in my life. And so, um, I could list a lot of things, I suppose, but those, those are the the, the two where I really see God showing up in uncertainty.
1: Hmm. That's great. I, I mean, I could, I agree, totally agree with or resonate with what Alistair said. I think there are a few more abstract ones and some of them are more like embodied practices. Like for me, um, like exercise. Uh, has always been a very centering practice. It's been something that um, I actually reflect back on on my experience of languishing. And I used to go and lift weights at a gym like five times a week, and it was was my time. And in a strange way, um, there's a possibility it may have become an unhealthy thing, but it was actually a way of grounding me and centering me and allowing me to process things in a very physical way, which I think was actually very helpful for me. And it, it resonates with a number of people who Sanctuary work with, who we hear from. They often talk about, in the midst of crisis, how meaningful the Eucharist is. Because when you can't feel or experience, feel God's presence, you can kind of hold it and you can taste it. And it's a way of embodying a, a, a reality, an unseen reality that you can't feel. So I think um. Yeah, embodied practices are, uh, have been really helpful for me as well. Um, just getting your heart rate up. And, and uh, uh, for me, that's been a very centering, grounding thing. And I often find in doing that, that's a time when my own prayer life kind of kicks in in a different way. Because I think about, you know, go for a run through a forest or something. After a few times of doing it, you start to, I think, I start to see things a bit differently. Uh, start to notice different things. So, yeah, that's been helpful for me.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I love the idea of just um, bringing it to these physical practices as well. Um, I, I more kind of live in the conceptual <laughs> world a lot of the times, but I think there is a bit of a danger in that of um, of not recognizing that we do have these physical bodies um, that God has given us that needs both, I think, care, but also needs to participate um, in in our health as well. Um, and I think there's something there that for me, like I need to always learn to be kinder to my like physical body instead of always treating it, uh, poorly. Um, that I think is important to my mental health and my relationship with God in general. So I think that's like helpful to hear. I never thought of even the Eucharist in that way, even though it's like, you know, you take it every month or whatever in your church, but it's so, um, helpful to think about like physically holding it and and connecting it to the spiritual realities that it gives us as well um any last final words of advice or thoughts that you would like to leave with our listeners um or students who might be listening
1: uh well i'll let alistair go last because he's going to be way more profound than me Um, (laughs) i i would say uh a couple of practical things. Uh, earlier on, we talked about feelings wheel. Uh, Sanctuary actually has a feelings wheel. So if you go onto SanctuaryMentalHealth.org, uh, download the Sanctuary course. In the COVID session, which is an extra session we created specifically related to COVID-19, there is a feelings wheel there. Uh, one of our ambassadors, uh, Hilary McBride, says it is the, uh, mu- the king of all feelings wheels. She's a big fan of our, our feelings wheel that we created. So there's a practical tool there that that you may find helpful if you're interested in pursuing that, as well as go on our website to look at. We've got lots of resources. Um, I think the main thing I'd, I'd say, uh, and I've said it before, is your experiences, however difficult they might be, they're not invalid. They, they belong in the community of faith. They belong in the church. And um, I, what our organisation is, is doing is is we're trying to make a safer base in the church, a safer place for people to... to communicate openly and honestly about this so that they can receive the care and support and love that people so desperately need in the midst of a crisis. So I hope if nothing else, what people take away is, um, I belong, I belong uh, to God. And I've, uh, there is my story makes sense in this community.
2: The only thing I would add is if you're listening to this, and you identified that perhaps you are languishing in your mental health it takes courage and, and bravery. Um, if you can muster it up, pick one person you think you can trust to talk to about it. I think that's always the first step. And and be careful about who you choose, like be wise in who you choose. Um, and, and if you don't have someone that you feel you can trust, um, choose, choose a, a counselor or a doctor. And start there um, because they're, they're going to be trained to respond well and graciously to you uh, but hopefully there's a friend in your life or a family member or someone within your church that you feel you can trust with this experience and and i, I would say that take that step um, it'll be the first of many steps but it, you'll look back and see that it was the most important step and and more and more, there's communities of faith that are embodying what what Sanctuary is trying to do, is creating room and space for your experience and naming it as important and a part of the journey of faith.
0: That's great advice. Thank you so much for joining me. Um... I've been really blessed by this time and I really do hope that our listeners will as well. I do wanna like add in more plugs to Sanctuary (laughs) Mental Health and then people would check that out. I actually have a feelings wheel that I accidentally uh, crushed recently. So I'm going to go and print (laughs) off one from your website. I actually really need them because I am one of those people who's like, I'm feeling something, but I have no idea what. And the words, having the words in front of me um, really does give a lot of life uh, to, to me and helps me understand what's going on. And, um, I really do hope people check out your book rhythms for life as well. Um, I'm going to tell people to buy it for me or <laughs> buy it for myself, buy it for my friends. Cause, um, I know that there are spiritual practices in there for people as well that I think would be really helpful. So, um, yeah, thanks so much for joining me today. I've appreciated it. And for Sana um, as well for sharing her story. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks, Selena.
2: Yeah, thank you for having us.
0: After every episode, we like to give you, the listener, just a couple of questions to process what you have just heard. And so here are the questions. Are you in a season of languishing or flourishing? When it comes to your mental health, how are you doing? How do you need God to meet you in this season? If you're at a place where you can be honest with Him, talk to Him about it. What do you want to practice in your life as a result of listening to this podcast? Is there one friend that you can share how you're doing with right now? Go and talk to that friend. What ways do you think you can go and come alongside friends who may be struggling? Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope it met you just where you are and that you would join in on our next episode.